Creative Babble. This episode contains strong language and depictions of illegal activities that's not suitable for young audiences. Remember this name, Mark Ruskin, because if you run into him, chances are he'll introduce himself as Alex Perez, H. Mark Renard, Alejandro Marconi, or Sal Morelli. That's just a few of his undercover personas. Mark Ruskin started his career as an assistant DA in Brooklyn and left it all behind to join the FBI Academy. It didn't take long for him to become an undercover agent. His first big undercover gig landed him in Wall Street, busting up trading scams. But that case went down in flames when a former colleague recognized his true identity and blew his cover. His next assignment raised the stakes and required him to infiltrate a dangerous crime ring. This is part two of The Pretender. If you're just joining us, you could keep listening or start from the beginning. It's up to you, really. We're just getting started. Mark is about to embed himself with mobsters, corrupt public officials, terrorists, and powerful drug dealers. Of course, we can't cover his entire 27-year career here today, but for that, you'll need to check out his new book titled The Pretender. It's a great read. But what we will do is talk about a case that was so intense, it had me grip the book so tight that I almost fused the pages together. I'm Javier Leva, and this is Pretend Radio. Stories about real people pretending to be someone else. Mark Ruskin's next assignment was to bust up a fraudulent document scheme in New York City. Not fake IDs, there's a difference. These fraudulent IDs are the real thing. If a police stops you and runs a fraudulent driver's license, it actually checks out in their database. First, They have to find the source of these fraudulent documents. Mark says that some of these fraudulent driver's license were selling for as much as $1,000 on the streets. The FBI didn't have any leads. It wasn't until a tip from a 20-something-year-old man named John Sultan that led the FBI to a shabby travel agency in the South Bronx called Holy Land Travel. The travel agency was a front led by Palestinian immigrant Mahmoud Nobani. We didn't have an introduction to Mahmoud. You know, very often in undercover ops, the way it would work is that a source, an informant, would introduce me to the target, and uh, you know, based on the strength of the introduction, I would then be able to start to establish some kind of relationship. But in this case, John was not in a position to uh, introduce me. John Sultan couldn't make the introduction because Mahmoud and his goons slammed his face on a table and pointed a gun to his head. Let's just say they weren't on the best terms, so Mark needed to find another way in. So what I had to do was a cold approach, which is in undercover cases is the most difficult. To approach someone without an introduction who's operating in a criminal environment is, is really a challenge. A lot of it involves preparation and creating the right image so that when, you, when the subject first sees you, he's predisposed to believing you are who you're pretending to be. It was for this case that uh, Alex Perez was created. Alex Perez is Mark's new undercover character. He was designed to blend in and infiltrate Mahmoud's Holy Land fraud network. 
here is where it came in handy having, as I've described, the ponytail, the gel, you know, several thousand dollars worth of jewelry, sunglasses. Mark's character, Alex Perez, set up a meeting with Mahmoud. The day of the meeting, backup surveillance parked the minivan down the street with a direct view of the storefront. As Mark points out, it's an added layer of protection, but if things go south, they probably won't get there in time. Alex Perez needed extra protection. And what I did is I asked another undercover, a guy called Bim, who was a big black guy who looked like a retired boxer. You know, he had wall-to-wall shoulders, kind of a grizzled beard, and uh, projected a tough guy image. Mark and Ben pull in front of Holy Land. They get out of the car in full character. Bim gets out of the car, looks up and down the street like a bodyguard. Then I get out of the car, I whisper to Bim like I'm giving him some orders. Then I walk into Holy Land. And, and all this was visible from inside the uh, plate glass in, inside Holy Land. And a very attractive young Palestinian woman asks me why I'm there. And I tell her, well, I'm here to speak to Mahmoud. No questions. She turns and there's a middle-aged Arabic-looking fellow standing in the back and he indicates with his fingers to wave me in. Mark's character, Alex Perez, walks towards the back of the shop and there he is, Mahmoud, sitting behind a metal desk. So he says, okay, uh, what can I do for you? And I look him in the eye and say, well, I've got a bit of a problem and I've heard that maybe you could help me out. And he kind of looks at me, he goes, well, what kind of problem? I said, well, I have a car, and the problem is the car doesn't have any papers, and I need someone to help me, you know, get the right papers for the car. And he says to me, well, who sent you? Mark knew Mahmoud would ask him this. I, I say, well, Jamal in Newark. Now, the idea is this, is there's probably about a million Jamals and a million Mohammeds in Newark, and Mohammed is a little too obvious. So Mahmoud looks at me, and he sizes me up, and to me, yeah, my heart's pounding. I'm thinking, like, you know, where's this gonna go? Is he gonna just tell me, go get the F out of here? So he looks at me, he says, after a couple of minutes, he nods and goes, okay, I think I can help you out. The first meeting was the hardest part. From that moment on, Mahmoud and Alex developed a relationship. Alex Perez frequently commissioned Mahmoud to produce fraudulent driver's license, social security cards, and car registrations, all under fictitious names. Mark quickly learned that, that Mahmoud had a roster of crooked government employees on his payroll, from the DMV to social security to other government agencies. So what I would do is I would bring a client of mine to Mahmoud. I couldn't bring a real person because we, we, weren't able, we weren't about to get real documents for a real fugitive who would then disappear into the wind. So Mark would bring in these FBI guys to kind of play small roles. So one time I bring an agent who was a, kind of a stocky, middle-aged Hispanic. I said, listen, Mahmoud, I'm going to be bringing a guy next week. He is a cartel boss in Miami. He's one of the biggest cocaine cartel guys around. So you got to treat him with respect because he's an important guy. So the next week I show up with this agent who's dressed 
in a very nice suit. He's got an expensive Rolex watch. And he looks the part and he's acting very arrogant. And Mahmoud is all over himself trying to be courteous and, and polite and treating the agent with enormous respect. And, we, you know, we arranged to get all the documents and it was a big success. So I brought over time a few, I keep every once in a while, I bring a different, you know, quote unquote client one day, Mark brought Mahmoud, an undercover agent named Steve Kim. And as we're driving to Mahmoud, I explained to him, as I had with the others, how the case worked. Steve listens, nodding his head. We go into the Holy Land. After a few minutes, we're ushered into Mahmoud's back office. And this time was a little different. In Mahmoud's little office, standing behind him are two Arab toughs, like guys in their maybe mid-twenties, standing with their arms folded, looking very stern. And I'd never seen that before. I, I wasn't quite sure why they were there. But the door to the office is closed. It's a tight environment. Steve and Mark are sitting right across from Mahmoud. Meanwhile, these two guys are standing right behind them. Creepy. And I make some small talk with Mahmoud. Then Mahmoud turns to Steve and says, okay, what can I do for you? And now Steve doesn't answer. He kind of looks at Mahmoud, then he looks at me, then he looks at Mahmoud, then he goes, um, uh, um, uh, and now I'm beginning to get nervous. So Steve goes, um, um, then he looks at me, his eyes are like bugging out. And he says, uh, uh, what's your name again? Steve forgets Mark's undercover name, Alex Perez. Mahmoud is pissed. And he looks at me, he goes, what the fuck? You're bringing people here you don't even know? And everybody's looking at me, the, 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 you know, the, with daggers. So now passes what appeared to me to be like two minutes before I answered. And then I turned to Mahmoud. I said, listen, Mahmoud, you don't need to worry. The, the guy who sent Steve to me is someone I've been working with for years. He's not going to send anybody to me that's not completely safe. So there's nothing at all to worry about. Everything's cool. So Mahmoud looks at me, but he's still glaring. And then he turns to one of the guys behind him and he barks some orders in Arabic. And this is the problem with dealing with people who have a language you don't know. The Arab the guy behind him nods his head and walks out of the office. I'm thinking to myself, did Mahmoud just tell him, close the front gate, you know, get the Uzis and pull the van up by the back door, you know, like so we can dispose of these, uh, the, these two guys. A few minutes go by, I'm trying to make some small talk, when finally the Arab guy walks back into the office. And much to my relief, he's carrying forms. He's got the application forms for driver's license, social security cards, car registration. So as soon as I saw the paperwork, I knew we were cool and that Mahmoud had bought off on my response. So I tell Steve, I said, listen, uh, you, you go way outside. I got to talk to Mahmoud in private. So he's out, you know, I figure best thing to do is to just get him off the stage as soon as possible. So he exits and uh, to wait outside. And then I turned to Mahmoud and I said, listen, Mahmoud, this guy is obviously a major league asshole. So let's make as much money off of him as possible. And uh, Mahmoud smiles now 
nodding his head enthusiastically, and we were buddies again. It turns out Steve Kim didn't have any prior undercover experience. The Holy Land sting was his first and last gig. It's easy to beat up on him now, but think about it. How many of us could actually pull off a stunt like that? Me? I'm a terrible liar. In the evenings, I would transcribe the tape, and when I listened to it, I saw that the time that elapsed from when Steve had said, you know, what's your name, to my response to Mahmoud was literally a couple of seconds. I mean, it was, it was imperceptible. I, you know, I basically answered right away, but it had seemed to me that it had been a couple of minutes. The Holy Land case lasted about two and a half years. Mark and the FBI ended up with 50 arrests. But an FBI agent's work is never finished. It's now the summer of 1994, and his next big assignment required him to infiltrate a major heroin operation. The target was a Chinese-Malaysian drug lord named Bing Gong Yang. But the goal of this case was not to arrest Gong, because Gong was already locked up and serving a life sentence for kidnapping and murder. Yeah, Gong was running a major heroin operation from inside the prison. In order to crack this case, the FBI had to work this from the inside. They needed to find a partner with nothing to lose. His name was Gil Sandoval. Gil was a Mexican cartel boss serving a natural life sentence in Texas. A natural life sentence means he has no chance for parole. He's gonna die in jail. I think when most people would have given up, he didn't and he tried to figure out a way that he could somehow work his sentence down by cooperating big time with uh, the authorities. In fact, it was Gill who tipped off the FBI about Gong's heroin operation. The FBI agreed to make him a confidential informant, but made no promises about knocking down his prison sentence. Here's how it's going to go down. Gill needs to convince Gong that he is still operating his cocaine business from inside the prison. And if they decide to help each other out, Gill can sell Gong cocaine and Gong can sell Gill heroin. But if they're going to make this partnership work, they're going to need help from the outside. Mark needs to insert himself somehow in Gill's drug trafficking operation. So Mark went to visit Gill at the prison under his Alex Perez character. They decided that Alex Perez is Gill's nephew and trusted lieutenant. They spent several hours together crafting a backstory. They really hit it off. Gil approaches Gong and offers to do business. It turns out Gong was not interested in buying cocaine. However, he agreed to work together. I receive a call on my pager from someone with broken English speaking with a Chinese accent who introduced himself as Richard. And it turned out that he was the trusted lieutenant of Gong. And he was calling basically his equivalent, the trusted lieutenant of Gil. Mark meets Richard... Gong's right-hand man at a diner in Queens near LaGuardia Airport. At the end of the meeting, Richard gestures towards the back of the diner. Uh, Richard indicates for me to go to the men's room. Mark gets up and walks towards the restroom. We're standing at the urinals. Richard's sidekick handed me an empty pack of Marlboros, which I stuck in my pocket. Uh, turned out that there was a small piece of tinfoil at the bottom with a heroin sample of 90% pure heroin. So we knew that these guys were, were serious and they were taking me seriously. Weeks later, 
Mark calls Richard to set up a meeting at a hotel to make his first buy. I wasn't about to tell him what hotel I was going to be in, and he wouldn't expect me to. Because if I'm acting like I'm supposed to be a real professional criminal, as a professional criminal, I'm not going to give him a heads up as to what hotel I'm going to be in, because I don't want him to have time to set up a robbery, a rip. Apparently, drug dealers have trust issues. Mark and the FBI booked two rooms at a hotel in Queens under his undercover identity, Alex Perez. One room is for Mark, and the other is for surveillance and backup, you know, in case things go south. Once they got settled, Mark pages Richard. Half hour goes by, nothing. So I page him a second time. Half hour goes by, no response. Now, you know, here we got like, you know, probably 20, 25 agents in the area. I'm sitting with uh, $40,000, in cash, and we're wondering, you know, what's going to happen? What's going on? How come these guys aren't showing up? Finally, as a last-ditch effort, I had a phone number that Gong had given to Gil. And, but when Gong had given it to Gil, he said, you know, don't give it to anybody. Don't, don't use this number. But for emergencies, this is the number of my contact, you know, that I use uh, in New Jersey. So we were wondering, well, should we use this number? I mean, Gong said not to use it. Just because, because Gong said not to use it, that doesn't mean we're not going to use it. <laughs> you know, we, we, after all, we're criminals, right? We're not going to listen to what he has to say. So I called the number, and the woman answers. She has a Chinese accent. I said, I need to talk to Richard. She says, I don't know Richard. I know this is Richard's number. Tell him Alex is waiting for him. Alex is getting pissed off. I'm going to stay here for another half hour. If he doesn't show up, I'm gone and I'm never talking to him again. Just tell him that. And she goes, okay, and then hangs up. Another half hour goes by, and his FBI colleagues call Mark. Hey, we're going to break it off. I'm cutting the surveillance team loose. I said, oh, hold your horses. No one leaves until I'm out of the area. Oh, but every, hey, you know, everyone's getting tired, they're antsy, I can't hold them here any longer. And I said to Mark, listen, I don't care. No one leaves the area until I'm gone. Because I, I, the reason I, I thought of this is because something bad had happened to a friend of mine once when the surveillance left before he did. And I said, once everyone, once I'm out of the area, out of the operational zone, then you can cut everybody loose. Mark leaves the room with the cash. The FBI is breaking down all the surveillance equipment. He gets down to the lobby, towards the exit, when all of a sudden his pager goes off. It was Richard. Hey, Alex, Alex, so sorry, so sorry. We'll be there in five minutes, we'll be there in five minutes. It turns out that they were doing their own counter-surveillance before the meet, and they were checking me out. If anybody had approached me, you know, if some guy with a baseball cap and a walkie-talkie had come up to me, or if they'd, been, if they'd seen any signs of surveillance, you know, they would have known that it was a setup. Once they were convinced I was clean, everything was cool, so I went back upstairs, went back to the room. The guys in the next room now are hurriedly reassembling all the recording equipment. And uh, 10 minutes later, knock, knock, it's Richard and his lieutenant. And uh, we were ready to, to rock and roll. After a year and a half, the case was ripe for prosecution. The FBI had everything they needed to take down Gong. Undercover buys, phone intercepts, informants... As soon as the prosecutor had drawn the warrants, authorities swept up the entire gong operation. 
But what about Gong? He was already in prison. Well, Mark says that they politely escorted Gong to solitary confinement. He was later sentenced to an additional 27 years on top of his life sentence. What about Gil? You know, the former Mexican drug lord who set it all up? U.S. Attorney's Office in El Paso had zero interest in helping him out. In order to do a resentencing hearing, Mark and his colleagues had to do all the legal paperwork. I, as an attorney, drafted the briefs and ultimately the judge, the fellow judge, granted a hearing. Mark and his colleagues flew down to El Paso to testify at a hearing on Gill's behalf. The judge reduced Gill's sentence. Eight years after Gong was taken down, Gill was released from prison and into the U.S. Marshal Service Witness Protection Program. Before disappearing, Gill called Mark to thank him and to say goodbye. Again, I asked Mark, why did you choose this life? On the way to the meet, you know, I said I'd be driving by myself uh, with a ton of money in the car. I'd be thinking to myself, I must have rocks in my head to be doing this. You know, wh- you know what, uh, what do I need this for? I'm going to go meet with one or two or three major heroin dealers. And uh, I could be, you know, sitting at a desk comfortably doing legal work. But as soon as I got to the meet, the adrenaline would start to pump. And, and then it was, you know, it was showtime. And after the meet, I feel like elation at having successfully concluded the meet and survived it, which was pretty cool. Mark Ruskin retired from the Bureau in 2012. He not only retired as a federal agent, but also as Alex Perez, H. Mark Renard, and countless other identities. Today, he works as an attorney and splits half his time between New York and China, where he studies Mandarin. Seriously, you have to read this book. We barely made a dent on some of his stories, and there's so much more. It's called The Pretender by Mark Ruskin, and you could buy it at your local bookstore or on Amazon.com. The links are in the show notes. Next time on Pretend Radio, we'll meet a woman who thought she was living a normal life. She had a husband, she had beautiful kids, she had everything. Only to find out that she's been manipulated for years and just didn't know it. So I was living in fear. I had run out of money. I'd sold my flat, I'd sold my house insurance, I'd sold my um, life insurance, I'd sold my piano, I'd sold everything to, to raise money to try and keep the kids safe. What would you do if you were the victim of a con artist. I should somehow be embarrassed by what had happened. And there is this perception of idiocy if you have been conned. And the truth is that it's not the idiots that get conned. It's the people who don't think it will happen to them. I thought everybody was basically nice. Everybody was basically decent and that everybody basically had a conscience. It didn't cross my mind that people like him actually existed. That's next time on Pretend Radio. Before I go, I'd like to introduce you to a new podcast I discovered. It's called Moms and Murder. And let me tell you, these women are a hoot. They too covered the Todd Kohab murders, except they did it in a completely different way. Let's just say they refer to him as Toddy Boy. Here's a promo about their show. Go check them out. 
Hey guys, this is Mandy and Melissa from Moms and Murder, a true crime podcast featuring two moms who think they're funny. Trust us guys, we are. Join us each week as we discuss both the infamous and unfamiliar stories in the world of true crime. You can check us out on our website at momsandmurder.com and also connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We release new episodes on Tuesdays, so we hope you'll check us out. Also, I have some special guests with me in the studio. It's my daughters, and they would like to say hello. Hello, my name is Anna. <laughs> my dad won't let me listen to his podcast. It's all over again. Hi, my name is Elia, and my dad sometimes lets me listen to them. No. <laughs> yes. And I don't want to leave before mentioning our two new Patreons, Marcio Andrades and Gabriel Leva. Both of you have been so supportive. You're like my personal cheerleader for the show. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. And we'll see you next time. See you next, see you next time. time. Creative Babble.